during the tribulation period. This will happen just at the end of the tribulation period, just before Jesus comes back, as I said. But these will be the worst judgments that have ever come on the earth or on mankind. So let's read about that this morning. Chapter 16 in Revelation, we'll start at verse 1. The Bible says, I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. We're going to stop there this morning. Let's have a word of prayer. And then we'll look at our message together. Our gracious Father, again, we come before you and bow ourselves before your word. We know that your word is truth, that your authority rests in it, that everything in there is your message to us as believers and unbelievers. And Lord, we have to submit ourselves because you are God. And so now I pray that you would teach us using your truth, the word of your power, that it might be ingrained in us, that you might use it to impress upon us our need of you and our sinfulness in ourselves. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are going to teach us. We thank you for your spirit who will guide us through this. And, Lord, we just acknowledge that we need you. Even as the pastor, Lord, I need your help. I need you to speak through me, and I submit myself to you now to be used as your mouthpiece and your instrument. So you, may you be glorified as we see your word together now. We thank you for what you're going to do, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get to chapter 16 in Revelation, I want to focus on God's wrath for a moment because we started looking at that last week. Some people will say that the Bible gives us two pictures of God or two different gods. As you read in the Old Testament about the law, about God's judgments, about his chastisement of Israel, you have a God that is severe, a God that is strict, a God of wrath and judgment in the Old Testament. And then as you get to the New Testament and Jesus Christ comes upon the scene, Then all of a sudden it seems like there's a different God we're talking about, a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of grace. Now, unfortunately, people who say that don't see the God of love and mercy and grace that comes out in the, New, in the Old Testament 
as God over and over and over demonstrates his love to his people and his patience with them. And then in the New Testament, they fail to see God's wrath and God's judgment. And I don't see how you can miss that as you get here, specifically here in Revelation. It's the same God all throughout Scripture. He doesn't change. It's the same God of love. It's the same grace. It's the same mercy. But it's also the same judgment against sin and the same wrath against sin that we see all throughout the Bible. God does not change. And so as we get to chapter 16 in Revelation, we are seeing the culmination of God's wrath that will come upon the earth in the end times, in that tribulation period. This is the worst judgment, as I mentioned, that's going to come against God's earth from the hand of God. And as we look at these specific judgments that God is going to pour out, I just want to go back very quickly to chapter 15 to remind you where we left off. At the end of chapter 15, we were left in the temple of heaven as God's glory filled the temple with smoke, it says, and no one was able to enter in. That temple and God's presence represents for mankind the opportunity of forgiveness, of experiencing God's mercy, his patience, his grace. As we have entrance into that temple, and the tabernacle was a symbol of that on earth as Israel went to that tabernacle and sacrificed regularly for their sins, And God covered their sins with the blood of that lamb. And then we know Jesus Christ came to be that final sacrifice, that perfect lamb who shed his blood on the cross. And so the sacrifices were no longer needed. But we have access through Jesus Christ to the presence of God. But here in chapter 15, that mercy, that grace is now put on hold. God's patience has come to an end with rebellious sinners on earth at this point in history. And so the smoke fills the temple and no one is able to enter. And so there's no grace, there's no mercy offered at this point, only judgment. And that's what these seven judgments are that come in chapter 16. God's judgment, the final acts of God's judgment and extreme wrath poured out upon sinners upon the earth who will not repent. God's mercy has come to an end. And what we're going to see is just as God sent plagues to Egypt, remember Moses went to Egypt way back in Exodus and said, let my people go, that was God's message. Pharaoh hardened his heart and God sent ten plagues upon Egypt as punishment, as judgment for the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, but also to get his attention in a way, get the people's attention to help them to come to a knowledge of God and to repent before God. And that's exactly what God is doing here. He wants people to pay attention. He wants them to understand that sin brings judgment. And so he brings these seven plagues at the end of time to people in one last-ditch effort to make them aware of who he is. And unfortunately, we'll see these people are so hardened in their sin, they are so stuck in their rebellion against God that it doesn't matter how bad things are going to get. They will not turn. And so that is what we see in these plagues. And they are plagues. That's what we saw in chapter 15. They are seven plagues that God will bring upon the earth. Now, 
just as the plagues were brought to Egypt, there will be these plagues, but there's a big difference. The plagues in Egypt affected Egypt, the Egyptians, the Nile River, that area. It didn't affect the whole world. These plagues that God will bring in the end times are, will affect everyone across the entire earth. There is no escape from these. And so it's not just a local thing that we're looking at. It's a universal plagues or universal plagues that, that God will bring upon people. And you will see similarities between these judgments and the plagues of, of Egypt. You also see similarities between these seven plagues and the plagues that encompass the seven trumpet judgments. There are crossovers. There are some commentators who think or who say that these seven last bold judgments are just an expansion or more detail about what happened in the seven trumpet judgments that we've already looked at. But the seven trumpet judgments were not in completion or in totality. Okay, So these are not the same judgments that we saw in the seven trumpet judgments. These are the final acts of God's judgment. And when these judgments are poured out by the seven angels, they will each in turn be poured out fully upon the earth. Now, they're called bold judgments. They were introduced in chapter 15. In King James, it uses the word vile. But I want to remind you, it's not like a little test tube that when you pour it out, it just kind of slowly dumps out and gloop, 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 and eventually it's all gone. These bowls are saucer-like instruments, almost like a serving dish. They're broad, wide, shallow, and the judgment is poured into them. And when they're poured out, it's just one fell swoop. Boom. And those judgments are poured out on the earth all together at once. And these judgments will happen very quickly, one on top of another. There's not a lot of time that happens between each of these judgments, except for the last two, and we'll talk about them when we get to them. But for now, we want to look at these seven judgments. Today, we'll hopefully get through the first five, and then we'll save the last, the sixth and the seventh, because there's something special about them that leads us to the return of Christ and to the battle of Armageddon. But we're going to look at the first five. So this morning, we start at verse one, and the Bible says, I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, go your ways, pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. Remember, this is John getting this vision from God. This vision is now continued from chapter 15 in chapter 16. He's just seen the temple fill up with the smoke of God's glory. No one can come in. No one can go out. God has already called the seven angels. They've come forth with the seven uh, judgments, and now God is going to pour his wrath out. And so he calls the angels forth. This is John hearing this great voice, the voice of God from the temple of heaven. And it it says to the seven angels, go your way, pour out the vials of wrath of God upon the earth. So God is saying it's time to pour out the final judgment. No more waiting, no more mercy, no more grace. Judgment is now ready to be poured. And so the angels go forth. And then in verse 2, here comes the first one. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. So here's the first judgment in verse 2, the first bowl. The angel pours out the first bowl, and we have these sores or boils. The words are loathsome and malignant or noisome and grievous in the King James. Loathsome and malignant. They are festering, painful sores or boils that break out all over people's bodies, much like ulcers. 
um, it's not something that you would want to experience personally. And if you've ever had a boil or an ulcer like this, you know how painful they can be and how inconvenient they are. Now think of that all over your body. That's what these sores are. It's very similar to the sores or boils that were part of the sixth plague in Egypt. God sent boils on all the Egyptians. And they will not just break out and then go away. Okay, Once these boils appear on men, they will stay there for the rest of their days upon earth. Now that won't be long in terms of history because we are almost at the end of history as we read this. In this context, Christ is about to come back within weeks or months, okay, not years. We're in within weeks or months, probably the final weeks of life on earth before Jesus Christ comes back. But these boils will be so severe that these people will suffer. So once the boils are poured out, they don't go away. And I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. But look at who these boils affect, these sores It says, they are poured out upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. Now, we've been seeing this mark of the beast since chapter 13. We've been seeing these rebellious people who are mostly concerned with self-preservation because they know if they don't worship the beast, if they don't accept his mark at this time, they will probably be killed because anybody who does not follow the, the beast or the Antichrist, as we call him, they are killed. They're persecuted. They're put in prison. They're chased down and hunted like animals. And many believers will suffer that fate as they're martyred because of their faith for God. And so these people who've taken the mark of the beast are self-preservationists. They're only concerned about my well-being. And in doing so, they'll worship whoever, they'll accept whatever they have to in order to preserve their own well-being and their own safety. And now God says, just as Jesus said, if you are going to save your own life, then you're going to lose it. Here they're trying to preserve their own well-being, and God says, not so fast. Because I'm in control of that, and now their well-being is destroyed as they experience these boils indirect, um, as a direct chastisement or punishment for their rebellion against God. Remember, back in Revelation chapter 14, there was an angel, actually, who came and warned the people on earth, or will warn. I keep saying in the past tense because we studied chapter 14 already. But this is still to come, but the angel will come and warn people on earth at that time. And in chapter 14, verses 9 through 11, it says, The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture, into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. So there's a warning given at that time, just as we have the warning today. Whoever gives in to this, whoever receives the mark of the beast, whoever pledges allegiance to him instead of to Jesus Christ is going to suffer the wrath of God. And here we see the first final step, the severe wrath of God as these boils are poured out 
and break out all over men's bodies. So they've been warned. But this is the beginning of that final torment and wrath that God is bringing. And here's an interesting thing. Remember when we studied the Antichrist and the false prophet and the wonders that they could do and the miracles that they were able to perform? They cannot prevent or heal these boils. And that's going to be a statement from God against their power. There's nothing they can do. They're helpless in the face of God's judgment here. And so as people flock to them, the beast or the Antichrist and the false prophet, for help, for safety, for peace in their world, they will have nothing but turmoil and suffering because that's what comes when we reject God. And so this first plague is poured out by God and sores break out. Instead of finding safety and protection and prosperity, God gives them disease and despair. And here's the first bowl. Now, second, right away, verse 3, And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. So the second angel comes very quickly right after the first one. Men now have boils and sores all over their body. The second angel comes, pours out his bowl upon the sea, and the sea turns to blood. Now, again, this is reminiscent of the first plague in Egypt, remember, when the Nile River turned to blood. Moses put his staff and, and struck the water, and the Nile turned to blood as a symbol of God's judgment coming against Egypt because of their stubbornness. And so here, the angel pours his bowl out and the sea. Now, we're not talking about a sea. We're talking about the seas in general, all salt water on the earth, all oceans. That's what this is referenced to. Remember, if you go back to the second trumpet again, one of the judgments was that a great asteroid, a burning star, came out of heaven, fell into the midst of the sea, and turned it to blood. And a third of the fish died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Okay? That was in the second trumpet judgment. But that was only a third of the sea. This is all of the seas. And it doesn't say how God does it. It just says that the oceans are turned to blood. And all sea life die. Every fish, every whale, every shellfish, everything that lives in the waters of the oceans dies. And he says it became as the blood of a dead man. So every living thing in the oceans will die at this point. Now, whether this is actual blood or something that resembles blood is not certain. Okay, some scholars speculate that this could be something akin to what we call red tide. Okay, you may be familiar with this. If you have lived in Florida or California or one of the coastal areas, you may understand what this is. But this is from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association. This is their description. And it says, many people call these blooms red tide, but scientists prefer to call them harmful algal bloom or HAB. Now, these HABs occur when colonies of algae, simple one-cell plants that live in the sea water and fresh water, grow out of control while producing toxic or harmful effects on people, fish, shellfish, marine animals, and birds. The human illnesses caused by these HABs are rare, but can be debilitating or even fatal. One of the best known of these occurrences happened 
Uh, it happens nearly every summer along Florida's Gulf Coast. And this bloom is caused by microscopic algae that produce toxins that kill fish and make shellfish dangerous to eat. The toxins may also make the surrounding air difficult to breathe. As the name suggests, the bloom of algae often turns the waters red. These have been reported in every U.S. coastal state. Their occurrences are on the rise, and they are a national concern because they affect not only the health of people and marine ecosystems, but also the health of local and regional economies. Now, that is a secular description of what this red tide is. Now, I don't know if it's going to be this red tide. The effects of red tide make the waters of the ocean look like blood. It's a deep red color. It becomes very viscous and thick as these one-celled organisms just multiply by the billions. And so it's very possible. And we just heard what the effects of it are on shellfish, fish, mankind, and birds. This toxin that's released by them kills everything. And God says all the fish in the sea, every living thing in the sea is going to die because of it. Now, on top of the fact that now the oceans are turned red, all of the sea life has died, I want you to think about what it will be like not to have the oceans available for use, but then also in the oceans, all of the carcasses of these decaying fish and sea life that have died now rotting away. And it will just add to the torment. No more fishing. All commercial and pleasure boats will be rendered useless. No more cruises. I mean, anything that people take pleasure in in the ocean today will be gone. And so the second bowl judgment affects all saltwater oceans, rendering them unusable and dangerous. And we're just getting started. This is two out of seven. So we have the sores. Now we have all the oceans turned to blood. And then we get to chapter, uh, verse 4 through 7. Here's the third angel. The third angel pours out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of water, and they become blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. Thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. So not only now are the oceans turned to blood, but now the rivers and springs, fresh water, is turned to blood. And after this third vial... At this time, there will be no more regular water on the earth. All water sources are now turned to blood. Whether it's this red tide or something else that God will do, but they are unusable. And not only unusable, but they are toxic to humans and animals. Every source of water on the earth will be rendered unusable. Now, remember, fresh water is already short supply because if we go back to the third trumpet judgment that we studied about, that it, uh, the third of the, nation, of the world's fresh water was poisoned, was contaminated. So a third of the water is already destroyed for human and, and animal use. And also remember that when we study the two witnesses that God will bring into the earth to testify about his judgments and about Jesus Christ as the Messiah, that these two special witnesses have the power to stop the rain, which they do during their ministry for almost three and a half years. So there's a drought, 
and they have the power to turn water to blood. So we've seen this already on a small scale, and now we have it in totality around the entire earth. All water turned to blood, unusable, toxic. There's nothing, there's no no water left for drinking, no water left for cooking, no water left for bathing. And remember, people are still suffering with these boils and sores all over their body and no way to wash. The angel speaks out in verse 5 because you would think from a human perspective, you'd say, well, God is a loving God. How can he allow people to suffer so much, especially to this degree? Why would he rob God or rob man of life-giving water when he knows that's the substance which they need to live? Because he's judging them because of their rebellion against him. And so this angel justifies God's judgment upon man, starting at verse 5. And he says, the the angel of the waters, which is interesting, because obviously God appoints specific angels, a dominion over specific aspects of his creation. And here we have the angel of the waters, saying, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged us. God has destroyed all water on the earth, and he is righteous and just in doing it, the angel proclaims. For they have shed the blood of saints, verse 6, and prophets, thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And so the angel gives the reasoning behind this. Why did God choose to turn water to blood? Because these people who have been rebellious, specifically in this time in the, the tribulation, have not only turned against God, but they have turned against God's people. And the government and all people who follow the government have gone all in to get rid of anybody who's not in for the beast. And all God's people are going to be the subjects or the victims of this attack. And so because they have killed and shed the blood of God's people, God will give them blood to drink, is what the angel says. And then he uses this interesting phrase at the end of verse 6, for they are worthy. You may have an addition that says, they deserve it. And that's exactly right. People who reject God, who are against God's people, deserve this judgment. They are worthy, in God's eyes, to receive all the judgment that he can dish out upon them. Because he is God, and they've rejected him. Now, if you go back to chapter 17, I'm sorry, go forward to chapter 17, verse 6, you'll see a description, which we will come to in the next couple of weeks, of Babylon, which is the one world political and religious system of, that follows the Antichrist. And it references this system as the harlot in chapter 17. And it says this system, the mother of harlots, is drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus Christ. Chapter 18 When this system falls apart, the angels say, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. So this judgment is well deserved by the people who are experiencing it. It is not more than what they deserve. In fact, it's probably not enough judgment, because God's not done yet. We know that. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27 says this, For if we sin willfully, 
after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. And it's talking about the adversaries or enemies of God. And they don't have an excuse, according to Romans 1. God has revealed himself to them in creation. God has revealed himself to them in his word. God revealed himself through his son. God has given every person that ever lived and will ever live on this earth all of the evidence of truth that they need to recognize him as God. And Romans 1 tells us they will suppress that truth and unrighteousness. And Hebrews says, if you receive the truth... And then keep on sinning and keep rebelling against God. There's no more sacrifice. And here in Revelation chapter 16, there literally is no more repentance, no more forgiveness, no more sacrifice for sins. In verse 7, back in, verse, in chapter 16, it says another angel speaks from the altar. Actually, in the Greek, it just says that John hears the altar speak. And the voice from the altar praises God for his righteous judgment, similar to the song of Moses that we saw by the martyred saints back in chapter 15. They are praising God because of his righteous judgment. And last week when we talked about God's judgment, we, I, I reminded you that we can't truly praise God fully. We can't truly thank him fully as we should unless we include his righteous judgment in that praise and thanksgiving. And we see over and over and over in Revelation the praise given to God because of his judgment. Because he is just and true and right in everything he does. And so even his judgment is perfect and holy, and he is praiseworthy for it. So we have this song of the angels and from the altar of praise to God because of his judgment. And so after the third bowl now, we have all water on the earth now contaminated and poisonous to human and animal life. And remember, if you don't have water, what else do you not have? Vegetation. So it affects the food supply immensely. And many people are probably going to starve if they haven't died from the sores and boils. Or they'll be poisoned by the water. And so you can see, as I mentioned back in chapter 14, God's harvest of the earth. God sends his angels to literally harvest people from the earth, sinners. And here it's happening. Then we get to verse 8 and 9, the fourth bowl. It says, The fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. Now, these verses, I would go to and say, here is evidence of real global warming. Okay? What we're talking about today from environmentalists is not real global warming. What God does is going to be serious global warming. Because he says that he gives the power power to the sun to scorch men with fire, Now, I don't know how many of you have ever had a serious sunburn, okay? But no matter how bad it was, it won't be anything compared to this. It will scorch people, burn them, literally. God gives the sun power to do this. 
Now, currently, we have documented efforts by our world governments, including our own, where they recognize or claim global warming, and and they say that because the uh, ozone layers have been broken down because of our abuse of our environment, that the sun's rays, the ultraviolet lights are stronger, more are getting through, and they're causing damage on the earth, they're raising the temperatures of the earth, and you've heard the stories, you know, the polar caps are going to melt, the whole world's going to be flooded, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so they have already developed and are implementing programs where they send planes up and they spray aerosols in the sky to create this artificial layer to block the sun's rays. It's been documented. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's happening around the world. But it doesn't do a whole lot, and it's only temporary. And believe me, no matter how much they put in the sky, no matter how many shields they put up, it's not going to protect them from this. The heat that God will produce from the sun to scorch men is not going to be escapable. Now, I don't know how God's going to do it. I mean, God can say the word and it will happen. All he has to do is increase the size of the sun by 1% to 2%, and that would be enough. Or he could move the earth just a few miles closer to the sun. That would do it. Or he could remove the ozone layers completely from the earth. That would do it as well. I don't know how God's going to do it, but he gives power to the sun to scorch men with fire, it says, to blast the earth with fierce heat. And this will be the most intense and severe energy from the sun that the earth has ever experienced. Now, obviously, if men are scorched, plants will be scorched. Grass will be burned up. There won't be any vegetation left after this. And again, not just for a day or two. This is probably weeks or months, depending on how much time is left in the, in the tribulation. Now, think back to what we just saw in the first three bowls. Men are broken out with sores, all of them, except believers. All unbelievers have broken out sores all over their body. Now their water is gone. Where are you going to go to cool yourself off? There's no water to go into. There's no water to take a shower. There's no water to pour over yourself to cool off. And so this heat is inescapable and immensely more intense than anything any human has experienced to this point from the sun. And so all of this suffering is compounded now with this intense heat. Now, Isaiah 24 predicts this. In verses 4 through 6, the prophet said, The earth mourneth and fadeth away, the world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. The earth is defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws. They have changed the ordinance. They have broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. So you see, God uses... Now, intense heat to add to the suffering and to continue his harvest of sinners from the earth. Several commentators also mention this, that just like what environmentalists predict, this extreme heat will melt polar ice caps almost immediately. And according to scientists, it could raise the sea levels 200 feet. Now, you imagine how many large cities are on the coastal areas where a 200-foot increase in the water levels would just inundate those cities, would flood them completely. So I'm assuming 
that there will be a lot of people drowned as well in this toxic red flood that overwhelms them. Now, at this point, you would think, okay, you know, God, I've had enough, right? I cry uncle. It's, it's, <laughs> all right, I give up. And yet, look at verse 9 again. It says at the end, and they repented not to give him glory. And in the middle of the verse, it says they blaspheme the name of God. In the midst of this suffering, they are so hardened in their sin, they will not give up. They will not give in. They will not submit to the Lord. And as Romans 1 and 2 tells us, they refuse to acknowledge him. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And therefore, they actually receive the wrath of God reserved for them at this day of wrath. This is literal. It's not a story. This is not a fairy tale. This will happen. And it's God's wrath being poured out on the earth. Now, that's the fourth one. Let's go to the fifth one in verses 10 and 11. The fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. So on top of everything else so far that we've seen, all this suffering, now the fifth angel pours out darkness upon the entire kingdom of the Antichrist. Now the kingdom of the Antichrist is the world, by the way, at this point, not just a local area. So the entire world is now plunged into darkness on top of this immense heat, on top of no water, on top of the boils. And now it's so dark nobody can see. Now when it says darkness, it's not just that the sun and the moon go out. Okay, This is like the darkness that encompassed Egypt. In, in, in Exodus, it describes that darkness as a thick darkness. In other words... If you lit a candle, it would not give off light. There was no light, period. And that's what this darkness is. It renders men incapable of seeing anything. You can't find a light. There is no light. It's like all light is absorbed before it becomes effective. That's this darkness. And so it's not just, oh, it's like nighttime, we'll turn on the flashlight. That won't work. Because this is God's judgment of darkness. And it says, it's poured out on the seat of the beast. Now, some say it's going to be poured literally on his throne. Others think it's going to be poured upon his capital, which will be in the area of Babylon over in the Mideast. Um, But it's going to affect his entire kingdom. So it really doesn't matter where it's poured out. But it's poured out on the seat of the Antichrist because he is the center of all of this. And it affects everyone. But it's prophesied, again, by the prophets and by Jesus. Both Joel and the prophet Zephaniah describe this time as a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. They both use the same phrase here to describe this. And Isaiah mentions it. Nahum mentions it. Amos mentions it. Jesus, in fact, himself said in Mark 13, 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun shall be dark and the moon shall not give her light. So it's coming. It's an absolute. And in the midst of this darkness, people are still suffering all the effects of all the previous judgments so far. They haven't gone away. It just compounds one upon another. And then at the end, if you look at verse 10, at the end of verse 10, it says, they gnawed their tongues for pain. 
Have you ever been in such agony that you just grind your teeth? You can't handle it anymore. It's beyond human toleration to be able to handle that much suffering and pain. And that's where these people will be. In fact, to the point where they will chew, literally chew on their tongues. And I don't know, maybe it's an effort to distract them from the other suffering. I'll make my tongue hurt so that I'll look, think about my tongue instead of everything else that's going on. Okay? But I want you to get this picture of the world and people at this point. Sores all over their bodies, immense pain, extreme heat, no water, and total darkness. Literally, God is giving people on earth a small taste of what hell will be like. Total darkness, immense pain that doesn't go away, burning heat, no way to satisfy your thirst with water, to cool anything. I mean, literally, this is a taste of hell on earth for these people. For God to get their attention, to show them what's coming. And this is just on earth. This doesn't include what's coming after they, they are, are dead. Because we read in chapter 14 that their torment will be forever. The fire will go up forever. There will be no relief in eternity. And so God gives them a taste of hell through all of his suffering. In verse 11 it says, And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores and repented not of their deeds. See, this is what Jesus was talking about when he talked about Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man was suffering in Hades. And he looked up and he said, If you would just send someone to my brothers from the dead so that they don't have to go through this. And Jesus said, even if somebody comes back from the dead, they won't believe. Jesus did come back from the dead, and they don't believe. And because they don't believe, this is the suffering and torment that they have brought upon themselves. God doesn't want people to suffer this way. But this is what is deserved because of our sin. Now, every single one of us should be, in our minds, absolutely thankful that we have Jesus Christ as Savior, if that's true. Not just because we will be spared this kind of suffering on earth, but because we, we will be spared much more intense suffering in hell forever. Now, as we approach Thanksgiving... And, and right after our service, we're going to go down and have our, our Thanksgiving harvest feast, okay? Lots of things to be thankful about. But we stop with this passage of Scripture about God's wrath and God's judgment, the suffering that he will bring upon people. What is, that, what is there in that to be thankful about? Well, there's lots to be thankful about. We can be thankful that if we are God's people, if we truly have submitted to him in faith, then he will take us off the earth before any of this ever starts. And it will come. But we won't be here. And that's something to be thankful about. 
It's interesting to learn about it. It's great to know about what's coming. God gave it to us as a warning, not just for us, but to help other people avoid it. But we can be thankful that God's not going to let us go through it. We can be thankful that there will be many millions of people saved from this kind of suffering during the tribulation. Because as they turn to Jesus Christ in the midst of that suffering, basically they will die probably as martyrs, most of them. But we already saw in Revelation that is God's way of delivering them from this pain and suffering. So even the people who have to go through this tribulation at the beginning will be delivered from the worst of it through death. That's something to be thankful for. We can thank God that even though this extreme judgment is unleashed on the world and mankind, like we can't even imagine that in this judgment God is still righteous and just. They deserve it. That's what the Bible says. And so God is not wrong. God is not extreme. God is righteous and just. And we praise him for that, and we thank him for that. Because the same holiness that provided atonement for our sinfulness will also, in righteousness, purge the world of sin at the very end. And that's exactly what's happening here as we see this in chapter 16 of Revelation. God is purging sinners from the world in preparation of the coming of Jesus Christ to set up his kingdom on the earth. And when he comes and when his kingdom starts, there will be no unbelievers left. They will all have been harvested to judgment. And so we can thank God for his holiness and his righteousness, and we can thank God that he does not change. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the message, the same God who is the God of love, who is the God of mercy, who is the God of grace, is also the God of judgment, is also a God of wrath. And that judgment and wrath didn't just start at some point because people got so bad. That's who God is. It's who he always was, and he will never change. He's a God of righteous justice and wrath. We have to include that in our assessment of God. And we have to worship him for it. And so we can be thankful and praise his name even for his righteous judgments. And we might as well get used to doing it now because we'll be doing it for a long, long time in heaven when we get there. Because everything God does, even in judgment, is perfect and holy. And those of us who have submitted to him as king will be able to praise him and thank him because he hasn't changed. We're going to stop there. We'll pick up with the sixth and seventh judgments next time. Next week we have our praise service, so we have to wait two weeks to have the last two. But come back so we can hear the end of the story here. All right, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll close our service this morning. Lord, thank you again for your word. And even as we see these extreme judgments that you're going to bring upon the earth, Lord, it makes us shudder to think that people are going to have to go through them. But as your word tells us, they deserve it. They've earned it because of their rebelliousness against you, because of their hard-heartedness and their sin. They will not acknowledge you or give you glory. So, Lord, help us not to be among that lot. I pray that you would in our hearts, solidify our faith so that we know without a doubt 
that we are your children, that we have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ, saved not just from the wrath on this earth, but saved from an eternal wrath in hell. And Lord, as we have that confidence and hope in you, we just praise you and thank you because of your son, Jesus Christ, because of what he did, that he gave up everything for us so that we could gain everything in him. Help us not to forget that. And help us not to forget the wrath that is to come so that we can warn others about the wrath so that they might be able to avoid it as well. Lord, give us strength, give us patience, give us wisdom, and help us to fulfill the calling that you've given to us as your people. And we praise you and thank you for all that you will do and for all that you are doing. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 202 is our closing hymn in times like these it may seem like things are getting bad now but no matter what the times are we need Jesus Christ and so the